Drink and Read presents Dune, episode 10, pages 471 to 506. So this is Dune. So this is Dune. So this is what makes the water of life. Hello, Duna peeps, and welcome to the latest episode of Drink and Read. I am Jonathan Kwiatkowski, currently trekking through the desert that is Frank Herbert's sci-fi classic, Dune. You've caught us near the end of the novel. Free free to catch up on the latest episodes and listen to what you missed out on. If you haven't done so already, because the end of this novel is rapidly approaching like a sandworm buttering through the sand. Yeah, I really went out on a limb for that reference, didn't I? But before we get into today's smorgasbord of Duntastic news, why not recap where we left off? On last week's episode, we began with Paul and Jessica arriving in Stilgar's Siege. As you may recall, Paul had just defeated Jamie and inherited a new wife, kids, a home, and a coffee business. Paul was shown the inner workings of Fremen society by his new wife, Hera, who's on a yearly uh, test trial thing. They're not really going to end up together, but um, it's not a slave-master relationship, and it's just following the Fremen culture. I guess it's still weird all around. Jessica and Paul discovered that the Fremen are far more technologically advanced than what they thought initially, um, as they're using the sand and spice around them to create plastics, explosives, and much, much more. Jessica is hanging out with Stilgar, also getting the lay of the land when she sees Paul walk in with his new adoptive sons, Jeff and Orlop. Not the two names for my boys that would have came off the top of my mind, but interesting nonetheless. Jessica, or Sayadinya as she's being known, is informed that she is to become the next reverend mother by partaking in a ritual known as the Water of Life. This ritual is very dangerous, but it's okay because if she does fail, Chani is there to pick up the slack. The ritual consists of taking purified spice melange, which is going to send you on one crazy trip, and then using your body's power to purify the rest of the water for the remaining Fremen to have a super duper orgy. Jessica chugged that down faster than me Saturday night at the club, and she saw some crazy things. She experienced life-death microcosms of reactions taking place in and on her body. She melded minds with the current Reverend Mother. She saw the past, present, and future. Time slowed down for her, but the rest of us continued to age at a rapid pace around her. Jessica also discovers that her unborn child is a girl because a boy would not have survived this little conundrum. Luckily, Jessica makes it on the other side and she is proclaimed the reigning reverend mother of the siege. And once the orgy has begun, Paul and Chani grow closer together, although Chani fears that there may be a dark force inside Paul that no one is truly aware of yet. Bum bum bum. Speaking of a dark force, Baron Harkonnen is fuming elsewhere in another attempt on his life, probably by Fayed, if not through for Hawatch, but it's commonplace in Harkonnen affairs. Fayed tried to stage this, and so one of the slaves could have an easy opportunity at the Baron's life, but the Baron caught on a little bit too quickly, and he's pissed at Fayed, but also proud that Fayed tried to kill him because he actually possesses a spine now. Sure. 
The Baron is thinking of retiring soon, and wouldn't it be lovely if we had a Harkonnen, especially one that I've conditioned throughout his entire upbringing, sitting on the throne instead of that untrustworthy emperor? Mm. And the Baron left maniacally, thinking about the future that may or may not be, leaving us readers in suspense until this episode. But before we continue on, as always, this is Drink and Read the Podcast. We're reading, but Jonathan, what are you drinking? Well, let me see what I'm drinking. How fortunate for you, lucky listener. I get to show how basic my wine mom tastes are today with a classic bottle of Yellowtail Rosé. That's right, Yellowtail. I suppose you've never heard of it before. It's a lovely Australian wine with a kangaroo on the front that could resemble a mob deep if you're as drunk as I intend to be. Yep, I'm really scraping the bottom of a barrel lately for wine choices, but it does go down easy, and you won't feel it until tomorrow morning. It's Lent, after all. I've got to cut down on my pretentiousness by at least 40%. So let's dive into the penultimate of the penultimate episode of Drink and Read Season 2 Dune with Epigraph 39. Arulon elucidates, and I'm pretty convinced that she stole directly from Tolstoy in this elucidation. She's talking about the patterns and innate artistry to the universe, seasons, and the weather. Everything evolves in a cycle of change that repeats itself year after year. We as humble beings rely on these patterns for structure in our lives, yet peril lies in this perfection just behind the scenes. All things, too, appropriately move towards death, and for a little peek behind the kimono, really hit hard today. Today's Ash Wednesday as of recording this. That's right, I'm revealing when I'm actually doing this days, if not weeks, before the episode posts. Well, you know, I'm a busy guy. I got a front load. And real talk, I don't know if it was Ash Wednesday, Dune, or the drink that I'm drinking, but last night I had an existential crisis and realized, too, yes, that we all come to die at some point, and part of me fears it, and part of me is like, well, that's just the cycle of life, there's nothing I can do about that, unless someone's got a hidden uh, map to the Fountain of Youth in their pocket, right? But I've seen the fountain, and like I said, pretentiousness needs to be cut down. Anyway, tangent over, back to Dune. Let us begin today's reading with Epigraph 38 and another Arulon elucidation. She describes that in the human subconscious we seek to make logic of the universe, but the universe is just a bit beyond logic. I always feel like I'm opening the most vague fortune cookie whenever I read in Arulon Elucidates. I'm sure it makes sense in the long run, yes, cyclical nature of the universe, uh, way beyond our tiny pea minds. And in this epigraph, we're going to see how the relationship between Thufir Hawat and Baron Harkonnen is truly petering out. Thufir Hawat does not have the highest opinion of the Baron. In fact, he thinks he's a very dangerous pig. That is fittingly an apt description, but the Baron Harkonnen is no dummy, and he knows Thufir Hawat knows way more than he's letting on. He wants to know Thufir's suspicions of Arrakis, what's going on on the planet, how he should control the planet, if there's any possibility that any force is going to rise up against him on it. Thufir Hawat is just living day by day on a poisoned, borrowed time, saying like, well, you do hold the antidote, so I guess I can pretend to listen to you. But at the same time, he realizes that the Baron Harkonnen is no Duke Leto. He talks far too much, and what he talks about just, you know, pervades ignorance. Thufir is biding his time, listening to, as he puts, this Claude, saying that one day he will rise up and destroy him, taking revenge for his fallen comrades. 
the pair get to discussing the prison planet of Salusa Segundus, and just where does the Emperor get his elite sought a car from? Perhaps this prison planet where they're conditioned to follow the Emperor's every whim, and they're just bloodthirsty combatants ready to die. Thufur Hawat says that perhaps the Fremen might be able to aid us if we were actually, like, I don't know, decent human beings to them, even though I'm a Mentat. But the Baron scoffs at this, considering the Fremen as, like, a level below human being. He doesn't want any of their help, he doesn't treat them right, he doesn't respect them as a people. Thufur is just pointing out the elephant in the room, and no, I'm not talking about Baron Harkoning saying that the Fremen are supposedly taking down the Sadekar using their own combat training, and if the Fremen are out there, perhaps there are probably 10 million or more which would make a sizable army. No matter how hard Raban and the Harkonnens are trying to stamp them out, the Fremen just come back stronger, clinging to life. The Baron is all like, okay, fine, you've convinced me, let's, uh, you know, keep this conversation going. The Fremen have supposedly been trained and would be the best fighters in the galaxy with just a little bit of training. Baron's like, um, what do you want me to give to them? Money, jewels, and Thufur suggests giving them anything they want, starting with a few select, uh, Fremen, winning them over gradually, but just giving them happy lives where they can live, take a wife, and settle down in the off time. The Baron is mulling this over in his planned, uh, patriocide, where he's trying to assassinate the Emperor, or at least sit someone he likes on the throne. He's thinking that the Emperor shouldn't have any idea about this, but then he has a flashback when Baron Harkonnen himself spilled some beans about making the Arrakis a penal colony, uh, to Count Fenring, who, as we remember, is the Emperor's lapdog. The Baron thinks that he should have kept his fat mouth closed, and he's pissed off that Thufur Hawat is constantly smarter than him in every way. The two get to thinking even more and suggest that the Emperor is no dummy. If he was planning to take control of Arrakis, he might have had a similar way about the Fremen in taking them over gradually, conditioning them to fight for his aid, and the Baron Harkonnen is like, Drats, we've been outdone again by the Emperor, but perhaps we can wipe out the entire population of Arrakis so then the Emperor can't use them as a force against me. Thufur suggests that for once, the Baron might be too big for his britches and that he should casually back out, forget the money, and gradually win over the support of the people on Arrakis. Leave Raban to take the fall and, like, you know, spend his next 20 years of retirement just alive instead of dead and plotting, you know, rule of the entire galaxy. Thufur Hawat says, this is the game plan. You're gonna let Raban squander all his chances there, and then when everything seems bleakest for you, you and Fayed Rautha are going to come in there as the saviors take over and do a full 180 crazy. That way, instead of being the dictator we all know you to be, you'll appear a savior and win some brownie points for everyone. Part of me wishes that Thufur is choosing this method because he knows it will result in less bloodshed overall, but he doesn't have any emotions, so I'm not really sure how to read Thufur Hawat. All that I know is he's smarter than the Baron, so I like him. It is also revealed that Gurney is still alive with those smugglers, as you will remember, and he's been sending info to Thufur Hawat on the side. Thufur worries about this new religion he hears getting started on Arrakis, although he doesn't know who the leaders are, hmm, and wonders if Duncan Idaho too survived his alleged death. How many survivors are there? 
And it's been years upon years, and still, Thufur Hawat has got it in him that Jessica betrayed the Atreidians, and that his main revenge is going to be aimed at her if she should happen to still be alive. It's just a huge dramatic irony that this wild goose chase of revenge between Jessica and Thufur Hawat isn't, you know, standing in anything. Thufur got some bad intel, Jessica never betrayed any one of her family members, and still he's harping on it, making him push it through push him through day by day. I understand you're poisoned and working for the most awful guy in the universe, but maybe take up a hobby? I don't know, pottery, sculpture, painting, poetry, something to keep your mind busy. Our next A Rule on Elucidation takes another page out of Tolstoy's books with pattern as an innate artistry to the universe, seasons and the weather. We rely on these patterns for structure in our life, and yet peril lies in this perfection. All things move towards death. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Tolstoy was writing that section. Paul awakes from his spice coma, just like me after some Taco Bell. And while in this coma, he went through something he refers to as a theater of process, which I love that saying. Johnny is there, ever constant by his side, with a fresh meal, and he realizes that he's now in the cold part of Arrakis, in another siege with their new son, Leto II. There's been another time skip. Also, there is Lady Jessica and his newborn younger sister, Alia? How much did you miss? And Alia has this strange thing about her, being that she's just been born, you would expect, well, a newborn baby. No, she's kind of in the body of an 8 to 10 year old, and it's only been a couple years. Yeah, they refer to Alia as the strange one, and it fits. And Paul is still recovering from the effects of the spice melange water of life that he huffed that really should have killed him, and he's unsure whether he's seeing a mix of the past, present, or future, and what timeline he's existing in. He also has this weird thought about enshrining his father's skull. Yeah, give it a few moments for the effects to wear off. Chani has not left Paul's side and says as much like, I would kill anyone who goes against you, Usul. And uh, he just keeps dreaming of this spice meal. I like to refer to Paul as Paul Soul from now on because it's a combination of things. But he is existing in this weird time flux. It's very Strindberg, a dream play. Jessica is fearful of the Fremen's dedication to Paul, where religion and politics kind of intertwine is not a good place to exist. Hmm, topical. Another great quote from this one is when religion and politics sit in the same cart, the riders think nothing stands in their way. Jessica may be harping on Chani, but since, you know, they produced a child together, there's nothing she can really refute about that. Then we get another detailed description of Alia from her mother's point of view. Alia is a little bit different than the average girl. In fact, she seems to be an unborn part of Jessica made incarnate. It's really weird what the spice did to her, and um, she has wisdom beyond her years despite being in a small child's frame. Jessica has no way to refute Chani, but she could still be the overbearing mother and say, Paul, I don't like that Chani girl, no matter how many children she gives you. Paul recalls Stilgar telling them how they have to sleep during the day and are awake at night, and that night, he remembers making love to Chani, so that explains a lot. In this epigraph seems to set up the calm before the storm. We see our heroes living together in moderate peace, preparing for the Harkonnen invasion, or at least to bring their forces up against them. Paul is seen by many of the Fremen as, you know, the messiah, and he is training the Fremen in weirding, but he still has not done the sacred task of riding a sandworm or maker. 
Paul still needs to do this if he's going to prove himself truly to the Fremen, and there's a lot of internal monologues throughout the chapter with Paul going, I'm trying to avoid the bloody turmoil path, I'm worried about riding this giant worm thing, I hope everything goes okay. Chani's doing her best to try and distract Paul from his problems by asking about his father and his homeworld, and Paul just, you know, basks in the loneliness and realizes that the southern part of Arrakis is lonely because there's no men there. In fact, this is where the women who are strong and the elderly go to live out their days. And there's something about Alia. She tries to play with the children who act their own age, but the children are like, um, that's an orphan situation. That's an old lady in a young lady's body. Something's not right with her. No, you can't play our reindeer games with us. But Alia's like, well, I do have psychic powers and a worldview of the future, past and present. I don't need to be playing checkers with you. She's an infant, but she could still hold a conversation with any adult, and Jessica will have nothing negative said about her daughter, no matter how weird she may be. And the Fremen and the Atreidians have never seen anything just like her. Paul knows that eventually this gap between his sister and the average person is going to cause some trouble down the line. We don't really see any conversations between this brother and sister duo, and I can't blame Paul. Like, if your sister is one of the children from the Village of the Damned, I don't know about that. He does recollect on what would Duke Leto do, saying, you know, Paul, you need to be succinct, brief, and, you know, as decisive as possible in any situation. And the Fremen are chanting, whipping themselves up into a fury before they fight, and Paul goes, You're right, Dad, I need to control my hand. I do need to fight and win, but I can't let myself go down that bloody path. I'm already a legend here, but I have to stay alive to do so, and maintain like nothing bad happens to these people, and the people I care about. We transition to the next scene where Paul is, you know, preparing to ride his first sandworm and getting some pro tips from Stilgar. The facts were these. Whenever a young Fremen comes of age, he must use this grappling hook apparatus to ride a Makar and prove his worth to his society. It is Paul's turn. There will be a thumper used to call the worm, and then Paul must hook and ride it alone without any help. And while Paul has ridden worms before with others, he's never snagged one himself. So another squad leader, a Fremen by the name of Shishaki, presents his own hooks to Paul to use, and Paul prepares to do the deed. Since there was another time and location shift, this is the only way that he'll be able to reach Chani, as they must take many sandworms to travel quickly to the south of the planet. They measure things not in miles or distance, but in how many thumpers it will take, and this is a 20-thumper trip! I think my 21st birthday was a 20-thumper trip. Mm, memories. As the sandworm in the big moment approaches, Paul recalls Chani saying to him, Do not be afraid, you must remain perfectly still, become like a dune. And Paul, for once, doesn't know the way the events are going to unfurl. Nothing like this has ever appeared in any of his visions. So I'm sure the next epigraph will tell us exactly what happened. Oh wait, no it doesn't. Let's see what Jessica is doing, huh? Before, there is always an Arulan elucidation, where she describes that any ruler controls the coin and lets the lower classes have the rest. Paul asks, who are the rabble, and who is to be ruled? And this is the last epigraph of today's episode. Boy, we are trucking along in Dune with only two episodes left to go until we finish the novel. So we flash to wherever Lady Jessica is, and she knows that Paul is taking his worm driving test any minute, and she hopes that it goes well. 
Jessica is chilling on the south side of Arrakis, living up her new Reverend Mother lifestyle. Chani is not with her currently, probably off with Paul, as we saw in the previous epigraph. And all we know about the south of Arrakis is that it's a very peaceful place where babies are born down here, the elderly go, but the people are still tough. It's a bit isolating. Her newest daughter, Alia, is off attending a birth celebration, and she's creepy. Lady Jessica is offered some anonymous spiced coffee, and being that she doesn't know who sent it to her, she drinks it down anyway because she feels very safe with the Fremen here, being that she is the religious leader after all. Lady Jessica is growing weary, not having seen Paul in a while, and it's been two years, so they have to prepare the troops in order to enact a strike on the Harkonnens before it's too late. Hara calls on Jessica, and just a reminder, Hara is Paul's other wife that he inherited from defeating Jamie in battle. The conversation drifts onto the quirks and what to do with Alia, as she is a toddler, but she acts like a grown woman. While at this birthing ceremony, the baby, being just born, started crying. Alia walked up, touched the baby on the forehead, and the baby stopped. This broke tradition and ruined the mood of the room. She comes in with her outlander-looking self and goes, I didn't mean any insults by this, I just wanted to feel his spark. Yeah, that's not creepy at all, Alia. You wanted to feel that baby spark, huh? And Alia seems to know a lot of things that children shouldn't otherwise know about, like sex, relationships, the universe, the way the world runs. It is not a good thing. And Hera has had it up to here with this Atreidian family. She's tired of people talking about the weirdness of Alia and Paul, and she wants out of this relationship. And Hera also knows that Jessica is going to use Paul as a figurehead in her religion slash martyrdom. Thanks to the Water of Life, Alia knows all this and more, including how everyone refers to her as a freak, and yet Hara still cares. She goes, you're not exactly a freak, you're my freak. Then Alia goes into this entire tangent slash monologue where she describes an event that happened to her. She remembers waking from a deep sleep. She felt a spark that she identified as her mother and another spark that she identified as the previous old reverend mother. And she's trading everything together. And so when she was born, she came into being with all of these experiences and memories already complete. She could be viewed as a reincarnation of the old Reverend Mother because she remembers a time of peace, chanting outside, and living multiple intricate lives. Someone get the Cloud Atlas people on the horn, I think this was the inspiration partly for their story. And that is the true true. But she vows that she will never forgive and never forget the evil that the Harkonnens have thrust upon their family, ruining it all. Suddenly, another woman by the name of Tharthar comes in and tells the ladies that there is trouble. Jessica worries that it could be her darling boy, Paul. The young men in this siege are gathering, and they think it's time that Paul stepped up to the plate and actually challenged Stilgar to death combat in order to choose who's going to lead the siege to victory. It is tradition and has never been broken before. Alia is sent off to listen and kind of go on reconnaissance for Lady Jessica and report back what she finds. The consensus is Paul and Stilgar have to fight for supremacy. This has never not been done before. It's tradition, and even though there is blood on this changing of hands, it has always been done this way and doesn't seem like it's stopping anytime soon. Hara has personal feelings, too. She doesn't want to lose Paul or Stilgar, so she's a, you know, character of both worlds. 
And she snipes back at Lady Jessica. Do you think I'm really jealous of Chani? No, I pity her. Chani wants whatever is best for Paul, and you don't like her for that. Because, quite frankly, you have a mother complex, Lady Jessica. And as if that read wasn't good enough, Hara points out that Jessica's rugs are dirty. I'm gonna go wash them anyway. Okay, Miss Hara, read Miss Jessica's Ikea rug for filth. We love to see it. And with that, we conclude today's episode of Drink and Read. My, that was a quick one and only two more to go. If you wish to continue on with the Drink and Read podcast, next week's reading assignments are pages 507 to 564. And for a little tease as to what to expect, will Paul ride a sandworm? If he does happen to do so, will he settle the score between him and Stilgar at the hands of the Fremen? And is there another fateful reunion for Paul and company in store? Lastly, is it finally time for the Fremen to rise up against the Harkonnen oppression? There's a lot of politics and intrigue still to go, but I hopefully will see you there. Just a casual reminder, as always, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and if you liked what you listened to, feel free to check out my other two podcasts, one being Nightcaps at the Theater, where me and a couple friends get a little drizzy drunk and watch some good and bad movies along the way, and then the next being Anime Was Not a Mistake, where myself and co-host Dan Ryan take a look at anime and anime-adjacent properties for you. Well, actually, I've got to be somewhere. You see, I'm having a birthing celebration. Oh, and... Uh, Alia, you're here. Well, isn't that just great? Hmm. I gotta go for now, but remember these two things. Do not fear as it is the mind killer, and drink and read responsibly. Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Pocket Cast, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.